Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're taking you through the best bits of Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath, How to Make Better Decisions. Chip and Dan Heath, we've done uh, two of their others, Switch, mm. Power of Moments. This is all about decisions because every single day we're making small decisions and every so often we're making really, really big life-changing decisions. The problem is nobody knows how to make them properly. This is a bit of a four-stepper, how to make good decisions. That's right. We don't really have any kind of process we go through when we make decisions, as big as they might be. And there's a bit of data here he opens with to show how bad we are at making these decisions. So when it comes to making our career choices, there was an American bar survey that found 44% of lawyers recommended a young person not become a lawyer. <laughs> It's pretty I mean, funny, yeah? It's funny, isn't it? They're dedicated Almost half it. of the lawyers say, this is a shit job. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Too funny. In um, business, 83% of mergers and acquisitions actually failed to provide any kind of value. So, five out of six acquisitions were bad ideas. And then personal examples, they've estimated 61,535 tattoos were removed in one year in the USA. Also, people don't save enough for retirement. Young people start relationships that are bad for them. Middle-aged people let work interfere with their personal lives. Elderly have regrets about not taking time to smell the roses when they were younger. So, in summary, we suck at choices. We suck at making decisions. Uh, An interesting thing, though, is that Danny Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner, the author of Thinking Fast and Slow, he says that a remarkable aspect of our mental life is that we are rarely stumped. So, we've made all these bad decisions. You'd think that we'd go through some kind of agony in our decision-making, but really... It was pretty easy to make those decisions at the time. We just got it wrong. Mm. Yeah, we learned from his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Other books are predictably irrational. Other books like Influence. There are a lot of different biases that we all hold that will stump us when it comes to the decision-making process. What happens often with the decisions? He says that we get trapped into the classic, what you see is all there is. It's like we're looking at a stage, there's a big spotlight and we use the things that we see in the spotlight to make our decisions. What we don't do is sort of pan that spotlight from left to right. We don't zoom out a little bit. We don't look at what's happening on the periphery, what's happening on the side. All we're doing is seeing that one spotlight in the middle of the stage. That's the only information we take. So we make our decisions based on that. Most of the time they're wrong. Mm, So it's clear our brains are really flawed instruments and they're not going to help us in making decisions. So what we need is a process and this is what Decisive provides. It will overcome the countless ways that our irrationality will get in our way of making the best kind of decisions because most of us rarely use a process for thinking through the biggest important decisions, whether it's to fire your worker, relocate for a new job or how to handle your frail parents. The only decision-making process in wide circulation is something like the pros and cons list and that's through and this is something much more thorough and it's going to help us much more than that. So if we think about a normal decision process, there's usually sort of four steps to it. First step, we encounter a choice. Second step, we analyze our options. Third step, we make the choice. And then finally, we live with it. And from each of these four steps, there's a big villain that comes in to make us make the wrong decisions. So the first step, we encounter a choice. And the villain here is a narrow frame. What happens is we have this tendency to define our choices far too narrowly. We often see it in binary terms. We think, should we do this or should we not do this? And that narrow frame is basically all we're stuck at seeing. We either do A or we don't do A. Yeah, it's kind of like, should I buy this car or not? Instead of something like, what's the best way I could spend some money to make my family better off? So after we encounter a set of choices, we need to analyze our options. But there's another big villain here that's just going to hurt us when we're analyzing our options. And this is the confirmation bias. 
And researchers have found this again and again and again. It comes up all the time. When people have the opportunity to collect information about the world, they're most likely to select the information that supports their pre-existing beliefs and actions. So we think that we might be trying to be super rational, trying to be super informed, trying to understand all the different options out there. But this confirmation bias is what's creeping in to really impact the types of information that we take in. So even when we're looking for all the options, we think we're doing the right thing. We're being affected by confirmation bias. We're only going to look for the options we want. And even when we see the options, we're going to filter it through our bias again. So it looks exactly the way that we want to look at it. Yeah, I think this is really obvious when you see some really poor shitty singers going to American or Australian Idol or something like that. It's clear that they've never had any bad feedback in their lives. They've probably gone to their girlfriend's parents' house and sung to them and they've <laughs> awkwardly said, oh, you're fantastic and keep it up. And, and they're just seeking out information from the people who are going to say the best kind of things. Mm. And then you see them get onto national television with the hard-ass judges <sighs> and they absolutely just flop and they absolutely suck. And you tell it's the first time they've actually received objective information about how much they suck at singing. Yeah, it sounds good through our own ears and uh, we get that confirmation from everybody else around us. Man, do you know I went on X Factor 2010? Oh, that's right. Yeah, how'd you go? What did judges say? <laughs> Not good. <laughs> so, it was exactly that. There was a... Uh, there was Can imagine Kay Ashen, you just dancing in your mum's house, Kay yeah. Ashen, and she's watching you. Oh, and she's... Really good, yeah. Applause. Giving us a clap. Then you go to the wild world <laughs> and you get slaughtered. We, uh, there was four of us. We're in a barbershop quartet. Uh, we thought we were pretty good. And uh, we got through all the sort of pre-rounds. We got onto TV and there was like the, the actual real singers, the real judges on there. And uh, I don't think there was a positive word said. They just absolutely <laughs> tore us to shreds. <laughs> Jeez, I'd love to see a video of that. <laughs> okay, so third, we've got to make a choice. And when it comes to that, the big villain here is short-term emotion. And when you've got a few different options on the table and you're tossing and turning between which one to take, it's really the short-term pressures and the short-term emotion which is going to make you to jump at something in many ways uh, be very irrational about that choice. If we've got like a deadline, we're going to pick the easy option. If we feel rushed, if we feel there's some kind of scarcity, if we feel like there's too much pressure so we just want to take the easy way out, if we feel like we want to please other people, we're going to do the thing that we think is going to make them happy. There's all these emotional things that are going to creep into our decision making. So it means that we're no longer making the best decision for the long term. We're just making the easiest short-term decision that's going to give us the most emotional ease right now. And after we've made a choice, we're just going to live with it. And again, there's another villain that can hurt us here and that's just overconfidence regarding the decision we've already made. People just think that they know what the future is going to entail. So they think that once they make the decision, that's it. They're going to be right and everything's going to be good from there on. And so that big villain is us thinking way too highly of ourselves and not giving ourselves different options or different ways to change our mind later. There's a funny example here. Chip and Dan say how doctors, when they say they're completely certain about their diagnosis... They're actually wrong 40% of the time. It's a little bit concerning. That's that's not funny at all. (laughs) That's not funny. (laughs) So many books we do, it it makes uh, me less and less confident about the medical profession, to be honest. (laughs) And then here, when a group of students made estimates that they believed had only 1% chance of being wrong, they were actually wrong 27% of the time. That's crazy. It's a factor of 27. Because, well, you'd think like they were giving themselves so much room to be safe and get the right, you know, like, um, you know, how tall is that tree? Estimate it, something that you think is 99% right. And you'd obviously give a pretty wild estimate so you can be pretty sure that you're safe, but they're still wrong more than a quarter of the time. That's crazy. Unbelievable. So in this episode, we're going to 
go through the framework that's been provided by Chip and Dan Heath to overcome the four villains, which is narrow framing, confirmation bias, short-term emotion, and then finally overconfidence. So the first big villain of decision-making is narrow framing. And the Heath brothers, they open up with a story of a girl who posted a question on ask.com. The title was break up or not. And the girl posted, I don't know what to do. Every time I go to my boyfriend's family's place, I feel judged. His sister, the same age as me, she's very mood swingy. His older brother hates me, calls me a bitch. His mum makes jokes about me. I'm tired of it. I'm feeling judged. Should I dump him or not? And all the people who saw this on ask.com, they posted their replies with suggestions about what she should do. Some were things like, as long as he's not treating you this way, then I wouldn't break up with him. Just don't hang out with the family. Another one said, do whatever feels right. Another said, this is the truth. Leave him if he doesn't say anything about his family. And another said, run, run. Fast, that family is creepy. This is one, you know, the breakup dilemma. It's a classic teenage uh, decision maker. But there's all sorts of other things that teenagers go through. What should they wear? Who should they hang out with? Should they go to the party on Friday night or should they stay home and study? And if you note that all of the answers to these types of questions were all falling victim to the villain of decision-making, which was the narrow frame. And that narrow frame was just, do I break up with him or not? In other words, when they're making this decision, they're not really making a decision at all. Teenagers are blind to all the other choices that are really out there. They get stuck with this mental spotlight, assessing things in isolation, while all the other options that are really on the table go ignored. And the more enlightened teen would say something along the lines of, should I go to the party all night or should I go to the movies with friends or attend the basketball game and then drop by the party for just a few minutes? So rather than the narrow frame being A or not A, they've got a wider frame considering A, B, C, D or Q or even Z. So the narrow frame is just that yes or no question, whereas the wider frame realize it's not just a binary option. There's so many more options that come with that decision. One business story now is the company Quaker, which owned a whole range of different food products. What happened was the big boy, William Smithberg, he bought Gatorade for $220 million. At the time, people thought that was ridiculous, but it was so successful, he grew it and scaled it up to the point where it was worth $3 billion. So that's a pretty successful investment. And he thought, man, I'm pretty good at this stuff. I'm mm. going to go again. And he thought, okay, what's another type of similar sort of product that I can buy and then revolutionize and make a shitload of money? And he thought he was going to go for Snapple. So Snapple, the option on the table was a $1.8 billion offer to buy Snapple. And all of the board thought, oh, yeah, this is great. You know, he's done it before. He can do it again. Big Willy. Big, <laughs> big Willy. He can do it again. He can save the day. He can buy Snapple for $1.8 billion and revolutionize and make us all a shitload of money. So what they were looking at is, you know, should, they, should we buy Snapple or not? Yeah. So remarkably, there's no one within Quaker at the time arguing against the acquisition when it came. They didn't look for those other options, C, D, Q, or Z. For them, it was just A or not A. So organizations like teenagers and like you listening right now, a lot of the time we can be blind to all the choices that might be on the table and the consequences can be serious. And so what happened with Snapple was all the people, they were looking at just A or not A and they thought, yeah, you know what, let's go for it. They bought Snapple for $1.8 billion. They very quickly realized that Snapple was very different to Gatorade. There was a lot more complexities involved and it just wasn't turning out to be the success story. They quickly sold it for $300 million later. So they've lost $1.5 billion on that transaction. And the big issue there was that they were stuck in this 
should we buy Snapple or should we not buy Snapple? They didn't think, okay, maybe a different way to frame this is, should we buy Snapple? Or the other option is, should we keep our $1.8 billion for future growth and buy something else later down the track instead? So they were just stuck on the buy or don't buy instead of buy or do something else. So against the narrow frame, what you need to do is ask questions like, is there a better way? What else can we do? So the goal of defeating this villain is widening your options. And this is the way we can learn to escape the narrow frame, discover all these better options that might be on the table for us. So the first step here is to just simply distrust all the whether or not decisions. Yeah, if you ever come up, should I do this or should I not do this? Recognize that this is a simple whether or not decision and you're trapping yourself in the narrow frame. Whenever you think, should I do A or should I not do A? Mm. Realize that there's a hell of a lot more options on the table than just A or B. Mate, I noticed uh, looking back on this book, it made me probably about 10,000 bucks, just this yeah. one <laughs> chapter, I think, because reading this made me think, all right, what are the things out there that I'm not considering right now as an option? And this led me to you know, put together basically a case at work where I could fly to Canada, go to a conference, stay in Quebec for 10 days, and then the whole time get paid to go there and enjoy that. So you know, if it wasn't for this book, I wouldn't have had, had that experience. Matt, that's a good ROI on a $30 book. It is. Actually, you said 10 grand. It's probably nine grand because you spent a thousand bucks on a leather bag, which I haven't, <laughs> which I haven't seen for a few months. <laughs> what happened to that? It's, it's just behind you, mate, right there. <laughs> I haven't seen you use it that often, mate, for a thousand bucks. One big thing we need to think about, which uh, we've talked about before, but, but definitely bears repeating is opportunity cost. It's something that pops up a lot. It's something that we all suffer from because almost we, we never realize this. So Adam Jones could have been thinking, what's the opportunity cost of buying this $1,000 bag? Could I spend an extra week in Indonesia instead? Yeah, that, uh, that, that, I didn't think of that at the time. <laughs> you just pointed it out and I guess I got the pain of the paradox of choice if you throw back to that episode. I'll tell you who really explains uh, opportunity cost very well and that was Eisenhower. You see one name like Sher or Beyonce? Eisenhower? Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's reached that level of status for sure. Just the one, one word. Okay. So he said the cost of one heavy bomber is more than a modern school in 30 cities or 50 miles of concrete highway or two electric power stations servicing 60,000 people, or two fully equipped hospitals, or half a million bushels of wheat. And if you think about it, if those in government at the time, they were just thinking, oh, should we spend all this money on a modern heavy bomber or not? You know, they're going to be in the narrow frame. But if they had people in the room putting all these things on the, on the table, come to think of it, man, I don't think they have people putting all these things on the table because the amount of money we're spending on military weapons at the moment is in the billions and billions and ridiculous amounts of money and the opportunity cost is absolutely through the roof. Yeah, well, if you look at this, this was 1953. This is just after World War II and they're probably just focused purely on you know, national security and they're all thinking we need, some more, we need some more planes, we need some more big heavy bombers. But no one ever thinks, well, it's either a big heavy bomber or we can build 8,000 new homes. Mm. I mean, that's a pretty serious opportunity cost right there. Houses for 8,000 people or one warplane. So you come to think of like, how much better would our decision making be if we just considered opportunity costs a lot more? Um, because being stuck in the narrow frame is really hard to recognize when you're in there. But only when you're the one inside it. I think it's easy when you're looking outside and at judging other people. It's very easy to point out <laughs> opportunity costs for them, but not for yourself. It most certainly is. So it's all about that widening your options. Recognize that nothing's binary. Any decision that you make, it means you're foregoing another decision. So that's that opportunity cost is if you choose to go for A, it means you're not doing B or C or D or anything else. 
Okay, so one strategy we've got here to get out of the narrow frame, and that is to find somebody who solved your problem. Because to break out of this narrow frame, we need options. And the most basic way to generate as many new options as you can is simply just find someone else who solves a similar problem. For example, if you're unfamiliar with a grant application process for a university or something, just go out there and speak to someone who's already navigated it. He talks about three different places we can look. The first place he says, look inside. So that's finding a bright spot. That's someone close to you. Maybe that's somebody inside your organization. Maybe that's someone in your direct team. Someone who's done exactly what you want to do before. Maybe looking for the manager with the best staff retention. Maybe looking for the division that's got the best profitability. Whatever you want to do, look for someone inside your organization who's already done it before. What can you learn from them and what can you take to apply to your own problem? So yeah, look inside your current network to find the solution. Or you can also look outside and that can be through competitive analysis, benchmarking, best practices. It might be through reading books or anything like that. So looking outside, so you're looking at other people who have done the same thing that you want to do, but they're not the people that you are directly within your network. It could be a competitor, it could be a different company or say for us, we've been working on this book project. So we look to somebody else we know who's done a book before, who's gone through this process. Um, the great man, Steve Glaveski, someone who we've had on the podcast before, who's also in Melbourne, who we know well. We thought, mate, what, what do we do? What's the best way to do this? So rather than us going out there and wasting days or weeks or months trying to do what we think was right, we just asked the man who's done it before and said, mate, how do we do this? Makes a lot of sense. And the third place to look for ideas in the distance and that is to ladder up by analogies so when you're stuck on something you can use the process of laddering up to get inspiration so what they mean here is on the lower rungs of the ladder it offers a point of view on situations that's very similar to yours and all the visible solutions here offer a higher probability of success since all the conditions are similar now what you do as you scale up the ladder you'll see more and more options through other different domains and all of a sudden you're looking at analogies from industries and fields that are completely dissimilar to yours and to bring that inspiration into the issue that you're looking at. One great story they've got here is the swimwear company Speedo. So Fiona Fairhurst, she was a head designer that was hired by Speedo in 1997 and her mission was crystal clear, design a swimsuit that would make swimmers faster. So traditionally, people just thought, okay, faster, faster means less friction. That means we want to make something as smooth and as sleek as possible. So they're trying to find fabrics and different designs and different shapes to become smoother, tighter, skimpier. And they were trying to find these things that made people faster in the water. And they were really consumed in their own field. They were just thinking, okay, what are other people doing? What are what have we done before that's worked? What can we do more of? But what Fiona thought, she wanted to widen her options here. She wanted to step back and think, okay, we want things to go faster. What else goes faster? So she's no longer thinking, how do we make swimmers go faster in the water? She's just thinking, what goes fast? Things that go fast, you know, missiles, things that go fast, sharks go really fast in the water. So she's thinking, what are the types of things go really, really fast? And she was, by stepping away, she was able to find some very different types of solutions. So she was laddering up. She was looking for inspiration that anything came fast, boats, torpedoes, space shuttles, anything like that. She had a eureka moment when she's gone through the Natural History Museum in London. She went into the area the public's not allowed and there's this metal tank and with a lot of water in it and she lifted it up and there was a nine-foot shark in there. Oof. I don't know if it was dead or alive. <laughs> I think she was a bit of a cowgirl if it was, uh, if it was alive because she reached in there and put her hand on it and touch the shark, which obviously goes I wouldn't fast. Be touching. Even if the shark looked dead, I would not Oof. be touching it. 
And what she noticed was when she ran the hands from nose down to tail, it was very smooth. But when she ran it the other way, it was extremely rough and extremely sharp and she actually cut her hand. And what she said was for many years, people thought smooth fabric was the key to speed. But if you look at sharks, roughness is the key to speed for fabric. And that's what they did. They developed a new texture that mimics this shark skin that she ran her hands over. And they used it in the 2000 Olympics where 83% of all medals were won by swimmers with the suit. And then only a decade later, the FINA bans these fabrics and styles. So by laddering up and looking at these different analogies, their competitive advantage was so strong that they had to ban it. That's pretty crazy that they looked outside of what everybody else was doing. They looked to a different industry. They looked to an analogy thinking, okay, how can we bring nature to the world of swimming? Uh, Everyone's just stuck about thinking going smoother and tighter. She realized that, hang on, it's actually something rough that actually goes faster. It's something you wouldn't think of normally. And that was so good that they had to ban her later. But that's the classic example of widening those options. So the first villain of decision-making is that narrow frame. If you get too stuck into thinking it's a binary decision, one or the other, you need to really open yourself up, recognize that there's more options, recognize the opportunity costs you're going through here and realize that maybe by looking outside to somebody who's done it before or by looking into a different field, you can get a much better option. So at this point, we've maximized our options. So we've got multiple, multiple options on the table. We don't have A or not A. We've got A, B, C, D, F, G, Z, Y, yeah. and hexagon. Now the big villain here is confirmation bias. We're going to be irrationally biased to one of these options, which won't lead to the best overall decision and outcome. Yeah, we've got to realize that our confirmation bias has led us to choose the options, B, C, D, and hexagon that fit within our ideas. And then when we assess these ideas, we're going to be affected by confirmation bias again. So we really need to be careful here to not be affected by confirmation bias, I guess, recognizing that villain and again, trying to break away from it. So Alfred Sloan, the longtime CEO and chairman of General Motors, he once interrupted a committee meeting that was seemed to be going too well. He said, gentlemen, this must have been a while ago, and yeah. ladies, uh, I take it we're all in complete agreement on the decision here and everybody nodded. And he said, okay, well, I propose that we postpone this discussion till next month because we need to give ourselves time to develop some disagreement, perhaps gain some understanding what this decision is truly about. So he, he actually thought to make a good decision, you actually need disagreement. If everybody's in agreement, if everybody's thinking the same thing, everybody's just affected by groupthink and confirmation bias. He said that they haven't really thought about it enough. They haven't really tested out this option enough. They need to go away and build a strong case against it. And they can use this disagreement as a bit of a fuel to have a debate and actually come up with a good decision, not just something that everybody thinks is, a, is comfortable. Yeah, so we need to overcome this confirmation bias by reality testing the assumptions we're making. And with this, when you're at the, ve- at the room at the very start, having the devil's advocate opinion in the room has a lot of value because it's going to make you consider the opposite of what your confirmation bias is leading you toward. Yeah, that devil's advocate, it's not just someone who says no. It's not someone that just says, no, this is, a, this is a bad idea. I want to do the opposite to you guys. It's somebody who's considering carefully the other side of the, the argument. Often with an idea, if it sounds like a good idea, our confirmation bias takes over and says, yep, let's do it without truly considering all of the pros and cons, all of the different options. The devil's advocate is there who's the person that really asks the right sort of questions and challenges some of those assumptions. So one way to test these assumptions is to ask probing questions. And this is what we should be doing every time we're trying to pry information from people who have an incentive to spin us mainly. 
You might have salespeople, recruiters, employees with a certain agenda and so on. So don't be afraid to ask these probing questions to get at the crux of the information that doesn't have a bit of icing on it. There was an interesting study where they set up people, uh, half the people were sellers and half the people were buyers. The buyers had given a, been given a sum of money, the sellers had been given an iPod, which is pretty good, but a couple of times it froze up and they had to turn it off and back on and reset it. And researchers found that the questions that you ask, the types of questions and the way you ask it really impacts what type of information you get. So if the buyer said, what can you tell me about this iPod? Only 8% of them were truthful enough to say that, oh, it's pretty good, but there's a couple, of, a couple of times it's frozen up. If they asked a different question, if they said, it doesn't have any problems, does it? Then 61% of people disclosed that there was a couple of issues. But again, it's a pretty weak sort of a question. The best question was, what problems does it have? So rather than, oh, it doesn't have any problems, does it? But asking directly, what problems does it have? Then 90% of people came clean and said, look, it's pretty good. A couple of times it's frozen up. I had to turn it off and back on again. Yeah, I think that last question is something very hard to come in with. If you're going in there and you've already got the bias toward buying the iPhone, you're probably going to go out there and just seek the information that is going to reconfirm the belief the iPhone is the best decision there. But if you've got the guts in you to actually ask the questions, what problems does it have? you're going to actually go against your confirmation bias and actually get the real information out there. So by asking those types of questions, the right type of question in the right way, the seller didn't feel like they can just pull one over on you. They felt like you were a bit more confident. You knew what you were talking about. They weren't going to try and fool you into that. So asking probing questions can really uncover some of the truths about the decision you're about to make. Another strategy for overcoming this confirmation bias is what they call zoom in and zoom out. So you need to be looking at the the bigger picture by zooming out and then occasionally you also need to look at some of the finer specifics by zooming in. So zooming out, we actually can get base rates for establishing the norm about something and zooming in, you get the more intuitive answer. So I'll give you an example. Let's say if you want to go out for dinner for a nice Mexican restaurant and you go on Yelp and you search around the area and you find a spot that says 3.5 star rating and when you're looking at 3.5 star rating, you're really zooming out to find out in the whole area what's the, the best one but if you want to zoom in, you start clicking and reviewing some of the ratings. And let's say the place has got a 3.5 star rating, which is pretty average, not very good. But all of a sudden, you look at all the reviews and the bad reviews show that it is because the, the cost is very high. And if you're someone who's a very high roller, uh, you don't really care about the cost. So from the intuitive, the zoom in kind of perspective, you find out the full story and then you realize that this restaurant is the one for you. Then one other strategy for overcoming this confirmation bias is ooch. Ooch, <laughs> yeah. I, I forget what the story in the book was where the ooch came from, but it's something we've talked about before and that ooching is just, I guess, making some small bets, testing it out. Rather than jumping in into the pool, you're just dipping your toes in at the start. You're ooching. Another way of saying that is what Jim Collins says, bullets before cannonballs. So if you've got one big papa cannonball that you want to shoot out, a bad idea is to just aim and then fire. A much better idea is to fire off a few little bullets first. So by shooting off a few little bullets, you can see how close you are to the target. You can readjust your aim. You can tighten up the scope. And once those bullets are starting to hit the bullseye, that's when you bring the big puppet cannonball out and fire off. Yeah. If you think about back to the start of the episode where we found out that 44% of lawyers recommend that other students don't do what they're <laughs> doing. So basically, these people don't even like their jobs. So one way they could ooch. <laughs> it's a funny word, isn't it? It's a it? funny word. It's, it's too similar to another word. That, <laughs> yeah. One way they could do that is 
when you're 18 years old, about to do the biggest investment of your life of six years and say 100 grand in fees and all that. So it's a ridiculously big decision that's going to have changed the rest of your life. Uching in this situation might be going to a law firm, asking to work for a few weeks or something along those lines, do any kind of way to get data about what the law industry is actually like. As part of this data gathering process, you'll be better informed before you place this massive bet. There's one college in New York, Hunter College. They actually don't allow new students to enroll in medicine or physical therapy unless they've spent at least 100 hours observing some real physiotherapists or medical doctors at work, which I think is a good way because I think probably a lot of schools and a lot of cultures and a lot of families really glorify medicine and the medical profession as like the pinnacle, you know, Mm. heading towards medicine so you should go and become a doctor. But very, very few people actually know what being a doctor actually means on a day-to-day level. And I think 100 hours would give you a good taste compared to, say, just thinking, you know, I need to work really hard, study hard, get into medicine, study really hard, and then become a doctor. But mm. really, you've got no idea what the hell you're doing. Yeah, man. Too often you see people who do their full degree and then either halfway they quit or they finish the very end, then they enter the workforce and they go, oh, shit, and they realize they don't like this at all. And then they quit after they've just really basically wasted that huge investment that they've made. So I'm a big fan of the ooch. Man, we, gotta, we all got to ooch every now and then. And so that was the, the second big villain was that confirmation bias. And so to counteract the villain of confirmation bias, we're reality testing our assumptions. So the devil's advocate is asking a few probing questions to uncover some of the real truths that we might have been missing. We're zooming out to see the big picture. We're zooming in to see some of the meaningful specifics. And then every now and then we just got to test it out and ooch, baby, ooch. <laughs> Up until this point, we've beaten the narrow frame by widening our options. We've improved how to assess those options by reality testing our assumptions and beating the confirmation bias. So at this point, it's time to choose, baby, choose. So in theory, many decisions really don't have this choice stage, to be honest. A lot of the time when you're up and on this point, there'll be something that's clearly, obviously the right decision. But occasionally, it's going to be a very, very tough choice. And whether it's A and C and D, and it's not obvious which one to choose, you might lose perspective in this thorny dilemma and blinded by all the particulars of the situation you'll agonize changing your mind from day to day and when you're in this kind of situation it's a very very hard choice the big villain here is going to be your short-term emotion short-term emotion is a big villain and it really does stuff up the choosing aspect when we're choosing between the options that we've put on the table so we need some kind of strategy to overcome it there's a few recommendations here one important strategy is the 10 10 10 so ask yourself If you're nailing down on one specific option that you're ready to choose, how will you feel about this in 10 minutes from now? How will you feel about it in 10 months from now? And how will you feel about it in 10 years from now? Adding those three different timeframes gives you this elegant way of forcing yourself out of the narrow short-term emotions and thinking about the longer term to give yourself a bit of distance before you make your decision. So you've got a story here about Annie who's agonizing about a relationship with Carl, whether to drop the I love you and be vulnerable for this moment. And they've been dating for nine months and she's unsure if Carl's going to be forever. So what she does, she tries to 10, 10, 10 and she thinks how is she going to feel about dropping the I love you 10 minutes from now, 10 months from now and then finally 10 years from now. And when she looks at it from the 10 years perspective, it all seems pretty petty. You know, either these two people, they're going to be happy together and she's going to be happy she said I love you 
And if they're not, she's just going to be with someone else and who cares if she said at the time. So, you know, in agonizing over this point, it ends up being an easy decision. Yeah, if you look at it from the 10 minutes perspective, it could either go really, really well and they could be making love 10 minutes from now. It could go really, really poorly and it's a very awkward, uncomfortable next 10 minutes. But when you scale out to the 10 years, as you say, either they're happily married and they'd be super glad that they pulled the trigger or they've moved on and Annie's found a nice new partner and Carl's probably single and alone and back mm. on his mum's couch. Yeah, I think it's worth using this 10-10-10 in a lot of different ways if you're, whether, if you're choosing what's your next job or whether you should quit your job or even going up to someone at a bar and asking them for their number or asking to buy them for a drink. 10 minutes from now, yes, awkward. 10 months from now, obviously, who cares? And 10 years from now, you've totally well, you forgotten what happened. And the important thing here, they say, is that when we're looking back on our lives through the regret filter, often we're regretting the things that we didn't do more than the things that we did do. So in 10 minutes time, we're probably going to regret doing something if it falls flat on our face. But in 10 years time, we're going to be regretting the things that we didn't do. We might be regretting um, not going to that event or we might be regretting not taking that chance or not taking that leap. So the second strategy provided here is just honoring your core priorities. So you to think, what drives you? What kind of person do you aspire to be? What do you believe is best for you and your family in the long run? All these kind of emotional questions really speak to your personal passions and beliefs. And when you answer them, it's not part of the rational machine in you. It's something coming from deep within you and it's based on your values. So two people can have a completely set of values and face with the same decision. The right decision is the opposite decision for two people because of this. Yeah, we very rarely do take this step back, get a bit of distance and think about what our core priorities are. So the Heath brothers say we need to define and enshrine our core priorities. It's probably not until you know something starts to crumble apart. Maybe we get fired from our job because we let our priorities slip because we weren't focused on it or we start to lose friends because we weren't valuing them high enough. It's not until this one big negative thing happens that we start to step back and think about what are our core values here. So obviously, it's much better to get on the front foot and do this in the first instance. Think about what are the things that are important to you and how do you rank them in sort of a hierarchy, which is going to help guide future decisions by realizing which ones are your highest priorities and which ones are happy to be slipped by the wayside. final villain once we're forced to make our decision we've made our choice the villain that takes over is overconfidence we think that we're going to make our decision and we will have made the right decision so that's that but in essence in order to counteract the villain of overconfidence we need to really prepare to be wrong the first strategy here to get perspective on all the different scenarios that might happen rather than just our overconfident singular scenario that we've probably painted in our heads and that is bookending the future so this involves estimating only two different scenarios and that is a very, very dire scenario where everything goes as bad as it possibly could and then on the other end, you go for the extremely rosy scenario where everything just works out right. So in between that, you got the range and that's what he calls the bookends. If you just think, okay, here's my decision, this is what I think is going to happen and you treat it as a single point then you don't really have a whole lot of perspective if things go slightly wrong, if things go really wrong, if things go pretty good, if things go really, really good. You've got no idea what the range of outcomes could be if you're just focusing on a single option. So he talks about 
Uh, one, I guess, easy example because it's a monetary thing. You're looking at buying a stock. It's currently at $90. If you just think to yourself, what could it be next year? And if you think, oh, it's probably going to be around $95, you're probably going to buy it. But that's just looking at one single point. Instead, you need to think, okay, what happens if uh, they run out of fuel? What happens if a, the, a big oil tanker crashes in the ocean? They've got to pay a big fine. The worst case scenario, what could possibly happen? Their price could drop to $50. Then if you think, okay, if everything goes really, really well, uh, their operations humming along efficiently, uh, they start to have a bit of growth, maybe they acquire another big company, the best case scenario, they could probably hit $100. So you're looking at it now, rather than thinking, okay, they're currently at 90, I think it's going to go to 95, I'm going to buy. If you then look at, okay, it's currently at 90, if things go bad, it could go 50, if things go well, it could go 100, there's probably a bit more downside than upside. So by giving yourself a bookend, by giving yourself a bit of a range, maybe you don't buy this thing for $90. So another strategy against his overconfidence is setting a tripwire. Because how do we know it is time to reassess the choice that we've already made? And how could we possibly learn to retreat from this decision we've already made? There's a really good example here from Zappos. And I think it's pretty popular, the process they go through to hiring their people. One of the things they don't want is people to get hired and then three or four years into the job, they're just those people who are just corporate zombies and just stumbling around. They're not very passionate about what they do and they're not kind of contributing to Zappos in general. So what they do is ask for two weeks of customer service training. Each prospective hire is given a choice. They're actually offered $4,000 to quit their job. I mean, it's a pretty good deal. You get paid for the first few weeks. Mm. You've got a good taste of the organization and then there's a $4,000 carrot on the table just waiting there for you to grab it. Yeah, it's a good little tripwire because most people, I guess, just think, okay, I've got this job, they've hired me, I've said yes, I've done the two weeks training, so now I start the job. But what Zappos have done is they've built in this tripwire to force you to make the decision again. What they've found though is that less than 2% of people actually take the cash and leave. I guess, you know, it's obviously a good thing that they've gone through the training, they really like it, they've seen what there is to offer, but now they've made the decision, do I want to stay or is it not good enough? Can I take the quick money and leave? Because when we go on autopilot, our behavior really gets unexamined and we gain a lot of ability to selectively tune out for certain parts of our experience. And if you're in that job working for Zappos and you're just going on autopilot and they didn't set that tripwire, I mean, that 2% would probably be very destructive in the organization in the long term. They don't win, so doesn't the organization. It's a good way to get rid of that, the bottom 2%. As you say, it's a, it's a win-win really. It's a win for Zappos. It's a win for the person who's going to hate their job in six months' time. So you need to think when you make a decision, realize that it's okay to change your mind and rather than just going on autopilot, think about how you can build in a tripwire. What is there in future? Maybe you say, in one month, I'm going to reassess. Or maybe you think if you if you've bought a stock, when it gets to a certain level, I'm going to think, uh, I'm going to reassess. Is this... Uh, something I want to hold on to or is it something I want to sell? Think about some of these tripwires that you can build in that force you to pull out of that autopilot and reassess your decision. Okay, as a kappa, I mean, we really suck at decisions and we are extremely irrational. We've learned this through loads of books that we've read and thank God this is a very good process, I think, to help us when we need to make decisions. I mean, you're not going to use every single decision but if you're looking at going into a new job, moving into a new location, whether to break up or uh, choose a new partner or anything like that, then this can really help. Yeah, some of those day-to-day decisions, you know, what to have for lunch or what train to catch, that doesn't matter so much. Do whatever you want to do. But those big life-altering decisions, you're probably going to only have to make a couple of times a year. It's important to have this process and think about it carefully. So the first step, 
we encounter a choice. The villain is that we often get trapped into a narrow frame where we think we either do something or we don't do something, not recognizing that there are a whole bunch of other options on the table. So the solution here is to widen those options. So the second step here is we analyze these options. But when we're looking at these different options, we've got confirmation bias, which is going to lead us to just the self-serving information. We're not going to be getting the objective information. So what we need to do here is reality test our assumptions. The third step, once we've tested our assumptions, we've analyzed our options, we need to make a choice. The big villain here is a short-term emotion that's going to guide us in the wrong direction to making the wrong choice. So rather than being so affected by our short-term emotion, we need to attain a bit of distance beforehand so we can step back and think about the longer-term implications of our choice. And then finally, you've made the choice and you're just going to live with it. But when you live with it, you can be very overconfident about how the future is going to unfold. So you need to prepare to be wrong. Wrong.